Well, if you are new with us, uh, we're glad that you're here, and we have been working through a series called um, Summer Seminars, and we're looking at the foundations of our faith. So what makes us who we are? Um, what do we believe? What do we engage in? And uh, Pastor Brent, our lead pastor, is away for a couple of weeks, and um, we're actually going to be meeting up with him tomorrow in California um, for this conference. But uh, he took off with his family a little early, and they're having a good time away and uh, having some uh, rejuvenation. So please be praying for them. Uh, but he asked me to teach on uh, the next three weeks about the life of the church. And so we're going to dig into some different scriptures about uh, what is the church and um, what makes us distinctive and how do we treat each other based on what we believe. And so to start off as we're looking at what is the church, I want to tell you a little story. And it's about a city. There was this city that uh, prided itself on being the most beautiful city in the known world. It was very cosmopolitan and very wealthy. And uh, they thought themselves very wise. Um, and they were focused on all the knowledge there was to have. And when it came to wealth, they really focused in on that. And they had these things kind of like guilds. Uh, might, we might call them unions. But a gathering around their different, um, uh, different products that they would be producing. And in these, um, these guilds, um, they would pray to these different gods. And they would ask them for wisdom and for secret knowledge to help them be more skilled in pursuing um, the, their, their trade. And that was supposed to make them more successful. But it was also supposed to, in a sense, save them. And so they'd hold on to the secrets of that knowledge very tightly. And they'd even have fights in the city based on uh, which guild was better than the other. And so it led to this, um, this, this factionalization and this fighting in the city. This city was called Ephesus. And we, we have a lot of information about Ephesus, and the name of these guilds were the mystery cults. And so these ideas of the mysteries weren't kind of like a whodunit. It was more the secret knowledge that it was given by their patron gods or goddesses. And that secret knowledge was supposed to save and make them more successful. And so as people were exposed to the gospel in the city of Ephesus after Paul arrived and, and other Christians uh, came into the city, people came into the Ephesian church, but sometimes they brought with them their previous way of worshiping. And so they just traded deities. And in the process, it began to twist the gospel message. They began to live and think in ways that were not consistent with the gospel. But instead, they built up for themselves um, these secret knowledges about Jesus. And these secret knowledges were supposed to save them, but also to give them success, just like they had tried to find that in other deities before. And eventually, this became known as Gnosticism, this twisted doctrine. 
And Gnosticism was that we save ourselves through our own knowledge. And there were some distinctives about this. It was very dualistic, light versus darkness, spirit versus flesh. Um, they had a number of buzzwords like fullness or um, mystery. And uh, we're going to see some of those as we dig into Ephesians chapter 2 today. But anyway, what was happening was they were, they were using these things um, to try to save themselves. And Paul wrote to them and he was combating their twisted theology. And um, so he was oftentimes using their very own terms, not because he agreed with them, but because it was a starting point for them to think about something different. So he would use the terms that they used, and then he would change the definitions. And he would fill those shells of the, the words with new meaning that was biblically based, that was true gospel. And so he was converting the way that they were thinking in his message. You see, the Ephesians were abandoning God in their pursuit of self-improving secret mysteries. And they also abandoned God's moral authority over their lives as they changed their identity away from Jesus Christ and after their own pursuits. And that led to conflict. It led to a lot of messiness in the church. Because what we believe about God, about who Jesus is, about who we're supposed to be in him, I mean, that's what defines our identity. And our identity, who we believe ourselves to be, changes how we live. The situation in Ephesus was really disturbing to the Apostle Paul, and he tried to address the problems coming from this twisted belief system. And so, um, he's, he, like I said, he's, he's changing the, the definitions of their own words. And it's really important that we understand these things. It's important that we talk about them because we live in a society that does the same thing. It's a society that, that seeks to create its own knowledge, its own salvation through identity, and its own salvation through running after knowledge. But it isn't knowledge that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see this uh, creeping into our society everywhere, including in, in the church. And there was a 2009 study of youth in America by the University of Notre Dame. And it found that despite religious or non-religious affiliation, almost all the respondents, these youth, held to a belief in a, a distant, unloving God. That we couldn't really know God as he is. We can't have relationship with him. He's out there somewhere if he exists at all. And that um, our beliefs or our doctrines, the things that are core to who we are, are not about relationship with him. Instead, they're aimed at one focus. And again, this is supposedly believers and unbelievers alike. They're finding the same goal. And that is the things that we believe are supposed to fulfill us. Doctrine then only becomes about what we hold on to be true to make our lives more fulfilling. And we've lost the plot. 
And so we see this subtle temptation to define our own truth, define our own reality, our own identity, and it leads to a brokenness in our culture. And so Paul's letter to the Ephesians should hold a special importance to us. So as we look at the passage today, we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, 21. And so if you uh, don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd love to get you one. Also, if you have not gotten the bulletin and the handouts after our uh, service, we're going to have a Q&A session. Um, and so there are some priming questions on there, a little handout for your information. So please just raise your hand if you need one of those. We'll get you a, a bulletin. All right. Well, as we take a look at our passage, we're going to notice four basic points that, that Paul is going to make. The first is that um, the church is to be made up of converted people. And when we talk about that conversion, we're not talking about people who are superior to other people. We are talking about people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. We've been changed by him. The second is that these people are called to serve as priests or ambassadors to reconcile other people to God. Third is that the church's mission is to openly preach the mystery of the gospel of reconciliation. And then the result of these hearts that have been changed by God is a people who live into this mystery together in peace and satisfaction in Jesus. So those are going to be our four main points. So let's jump into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also uh, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So right off the bat, it is really important to the Apostle Paul that the Ephesians recognize that they cannot save themselves. Can't do it. They are dead in their transgressions. And something that is dead can't bring itself back to life. And we see in the gospel that that which is dead needs a savior to make it alive. When I talk with people, I, I like to have conversations with people, whether it's just uh, you, know, you meet them on the plane or out on the street or in a store or uh, online. Um, have lots of online conversations with people and questions and, and comments back and forth. And, and I, I often notice that, that people kind of take this tone of like, I'm a pretty good person. 
Um, even when I talk to, to other, um, you know, Christians, they'll say, well, you know, I've given my life to Christ, but I wasn't bad beforehand. I was just, uh, you know, I was living a fine life, but I, I felt that I should make a decision for Christ. And, and Paul's not talking about that here. Paul is saying, you were dead in your transgressions. The reality is, that is the situation for all of us. Apart from Jesus Christ and what he has done to save us, we are dead in our sins. So even while we're walking around, we're spiritually stillborn. We need a savior. And so when we think about conversion, we're not talking about people who think that they're better than other people. We're talking about a people who are dependent on Christ Jesus to save them. And it's really important that just like Paul wants the Ephesians to understand that, that we understand it too. That we are dead in our transgressions apart from Christ. It's through Christ that we've been made alive. It's through his work. God is the one who has done the work to save us. He extended grace to us because of his great love for us. One of the things that I often notice in these conversations is when we start talking about God, there's a lot of mistrust for God. And, and people kind of go, well, I, I can't know him. He's distant. He, he doesn't like me. Um, and, and God seems negative. It's like these early Gnostics and some of their beliefs were that you actually had to bypass God to get to this other spirituality. And God becomes their enemy. And that's what I see so often in our society today as I talk with people is they view God as an enemy. And yet the consistent message of the scriptures is that God has loved us. He loved us self-sacrificially. He has done everything to bring us to himself. Paul tells us in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that sinners isn't just like, oh, we made mistakes. It was that we were in rebellion against him. And yet he loved us with his son. And so the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be made up of converted people. People who have recognized their need for a savior and have cried out. People who have depended on Jesus and his blood for their good, for their salvation. It's only when we've come to this point that we, when we recognize our inability to live godly lives on our own and we turn to God for salvation that he comes in and changes our hearts and makes us acceptable to himself. And so we converted people are a dependent people. In Luke chapter 7, um, Jesus goes to um, a, a dinner party. And at that dinner party, this woman comes in and she uh, bathes his feet with her tears and she dries his feet with her hair. And the religious leaders are just indignant that there's been this breach of protocol. And yet they have not even greeted, they haven't even given the customary greeting to Jesus. And he points that out. And he says, you haven't even greeted me, but she has shown so much appreciation for me. And what he says is, whoever is forgiven little, 
loves little. And the opposite of that is also true. Whoever has been forgiven much loves much. We're meant to be a people who have really been changed at the core by Jesus, who have counted the cost and left the broad road to follow Jesus. And in that process, we can appreciate what Jesus has done for us, that he has taken the burden on himself. We don't have to earn our way to heaven. We don't have to have the right knowledge, the amount of knowledge, any of those things. We need Jesus. And the great news is he's been given to us. And Paul puts things in the order that he does for a reason, that there has been death to life through faith by God's work, not by our work. And that leads to good works. So we've got to be so careful not to put the cart in front of the horse and think that we earn relationship by good works. The good works are meant to come out of a relationship and a standing, an identity that we have with God, that he is operating through us into the world. And that's why we want to focus on disciple by doing as a church. We want to live into these concepts. We want to be a people who takes this seriously and has an appreciation for what God has done for us. And that leads to good works. And good works become kind of like a signpost. That when we're living out this faith and this new identity that we have in Christ Jesus and the outflow being those good works, those things point other people back to our God. And there's one more thought on this. Baptism also serves as a signpost. It's this public witness of something that God has done for us. It isn't just a decision that we've made for ourselves. It isn't just something that our parents did for us. Instead, this is a, a witness out into the world around us of the change that God has already done within our hearts. And we have an opportunity coming up to engage in that baptism, to be that signpost uh, out into the world. And so coming up on the 9th of July, after our services, we're going to have a baptism class. And so if you've ever wondered, uh, what is this baptism thing? Or uh, what does New Life believe about baptism? Or how do I engage in that? Come be a part of it. There's a sign-up sheet on the welcome table back there. And then the following week, on the 16th of July, we're going to have baptism between the two services. So we'd just like to invite everybody to be present for that. And for those who would like to uh, take that step of obedience and uh, an expression of their faith, this is the time to do it. And so we'd just love to encourage you to sign up for that. Let's take a look at the next portion of Ephesians, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, um, I lost my place. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So Jesus didn't just come um, to save those who thought that they could save themselves. And he also didn't just come for those who thought that their blood lineage would save them. And so what we see happening here is, is two different peoples who both think that they can get to God on their own. One through these spiritual means and one through physical means. And the gospel message of who Christ is and what he's done through his blood is scandalous to both. The Gnostics who didn't believe that matter was good, how can Jesus, who is fully man, get us to God through his blood of physical means? And on the other side, how could God become a man and do this work on our behalf? Either way, they want to get to God apart from the means that God has given. And so you've got these two competing groups on either side of the spectrum here that are competing, they're, they're having conflict, and yet neither one of them is going to accomplish salvation. And so the hostility is something that needs to be put to death. And God is doing that through the sacrifice of his son. And so that isn't just a Jew-Gentile thing. Here we're talking about Jew and Gentile and their perspectives. But really this serves as kind of a microcosm to the reality of all human conflict, all human hostility. And so in Jesus Christ, in this new identity, there is no longer any place for hostility along these different lines, whether it's uh, race or it's identity or it's um, a place, nation, any of these different things, politics. It isn't the thing that we're supposed to concentrate on anymore because we're supposed to concentrate on Jesus. I have made some really amazing friendships, and I'm so blessed to, to know people from all over the world. And I've met people from Uganda and Nigeria and Malaysia, and we've gotten to be these just really fast friends. And the reason why is because we share Jesus. And so it's like we connect together, and we just immediately recognize, like, 
oh, you believe in Jesus. Oh, I see what the Holy Spirit is doing in you and in your community back home. And, and now you're here and you're a part of this. And, and they're seeing the same thing. And it's just like, oh, love fest. Like, we just love each other so much. And, um, and it's amazing to see how that occurs. But the only reason that can occur is because we focus on what we have in common. And that's the same king, Jesus if we were to get down into the weeds, there might be things that we would have differences on. But we're not going to allow those things to divide us. Because Christ is one. And in the joining of two peoples, it's creating this new household or temple. And what's so amazing is what, what we see throughout the New Testament is that that God has left the temple building. He's left the things that dividing wall, the curtain and the wall that kept the Gentiles out. And he is now living amongst his people. And he's creating a people from all ethnicities, all backgrounds. They're abandoning what they were for a new identity. And that identity is Christ. And this is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. And so just really briefly, God promised Abraham that he would become the father of many nations. Genesis 15. God spoke in an oracle through Moses in Deuteronomy 32 that he was going to make the Jews jealous by a, a different people, the Gentiles, by inviting them in. Isaiah promised that the kings of the earth and the people of the far-off islands would come and put their hope in the Messiah and worship him. And so uh, there is no longer any place for hostility between these different groups because of the unity they have in the Messiah, Christ Jesus. And so the universal church has one identity, has one faith, and that is Christ Jesus. And if the church is this new temple that's being built, not a physical location, but the people of God, that means that every individual who participates in the church is a priest. Now, what, whoa, what's that mean, priest? We've got some negative associations with priest. Really, at, at its core, what it just means is a mediator. The one who stands between, the one who introduces one to the other. And so the priest is meant to point people back to God in worship. That's the, that's the purpose. And that is what Israel was called to do. Their purpose statement in, in Exodus 19.6 was that they were to be a nation of priests, a holy possession to God. And we are given the same exact mandate in the New Testament. So we have the same words. It's just expanded in 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And so we are being called to become these priests that point the world back to God. And Paul agrees when he says in 2 Corinthians 5, God who reconciled to himself through Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I love Paul's thought here on being an ambassador. Think about that for a moment. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador is somebody who goes to another nation and builds peace between the two nations, encourages this interaction between the two peoples. And an embassy where the, the ambassador serves is actually not considered that foreign soil. It belongs to the nation that he's from. And so, like an ambassador, that is what the church is supposed to be about, right? As we gather together, we are people who are in the world, but not of the world. Instead, we are to be people who engage in this peacemaking mission and introducing people to our God. That may seem like a hefty thing to do, but that is what the church is meant to be. That's who we are meant to be as believers in Christ Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers, just being willing people, allowing God to work in and through us. Paul knows that this message is challenging for both the Jews and these pagan background Gnostic people in the Ephesian church. And so he engages this thought more deeply. So let's take a look at chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which, uh, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So here Paul is digging into the twisted Gnostic belief system. And so he's using this term mystery, um, which they meant as the secret knowledge that's going to save them and is going to uh, make life easier for them and eventually release them from the trappings of the physical realm. 
Instead, what he's saying is, no, the mystery isn't that. The mystery is actually what God is doing in the world through his love, his display of love in Christ Jesus. And it's not a secret to be kept by initiates. Instead, this is something that is meant to be broadcast to the entire world. So he's taking their concept of mystery and he's flipping it on its ear. And what's awesome is, yes, this mystery was actually made known in ages past through the foundation of the prophets. So why does it seem so mysterious? Why does it seem so brand new? And it's because of the hardness of the human heart. People refused to recognize what God told them was going to happen. But now he's opened the way for them to see through his Holy Spirit. And so this message is that the church, the people of God, led by Christ through his spirit, is the place where God is actually declaring victory over those forces that are hostile to him. Whether those are human forces in positions of power and authority, or it's people who are trying to find an alternative way to to, uh, some sort of release apart from God, or it's... um, the, the, the rulers in the heavenly realms, those spiritual forces that are in opposition to God. All of these have been put on notice that God is taking the offense, that God is declaring victory over all of this through what he is doing in his church. Bringing all of these people together who by all natural means and all spiritual means that are already on display in the world are actually divided from one another and war against each other. That's not going to happen anymore because of what Jesus has done. I have a good buddy in, uh, in ministry who likes to say that we're storming the gates of hell and trashing the place. I was like that. The way that we're going to trash the place is by the way that we love one another. It, again, turns our concepts on their ears. You do violence to the devil when you forgive. You tear down bricks in the enemy's city when you choose to love. You end the power of lies when you tell the truth. And so engaging in the mystery of love is the way that we're going to put feet on the church's mission, which is to preach the mystery of the gospel of reconciliation. That's what we're called to do. And it's not just Brent and it's not just me standing up before you on a Sunday morning. It's you. It's how we live together. That is the preaching of the gospel. Because that is what makes our message believable. And that's a direct challenge to the the, the Gnostic message. God is not misguided in creating humanity. He didn't get it wrong. Instead, he is building a humanity that he meant to have at the very beginning. And it's all through the work of Jesus. He's making himself an army of peacemakers who do things the opposite way than the world deems wise. 
And that is why Paul can tell the Ephesians not to be dismayed by his sufferings, because his sufferings are not evidence that he is on the wrong track or that God has abandoned him, but instead his sufferings and his sufferings in, in a self-sacrificial way on behalf of these Ephesians are what point as a signpost back to his acceptance by God. Because he is taking after the Jesus who sacrificed himself. The power that Christ has given his people is the power to love self-sacrificially regardless of our hardships. So Paul concludes this thought on the nature and the purpose of the converted church with a prayer for the Ephesians. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The mystery cults, the, the, these early Gnostics were all about power. They were consumed with the idea of how do we get more power? How do we manipulate God or gods to give us the power that we need for comfort and for building our own identity that saves us? And what he's saying here is this, this idea of the fullness of God, which is another buzzword of the Gnostics, this fullness uh, um, that, that's supposed to save us. Um, and what he's saying is, no, that's not where we find fullness. The fullness that we find is actually the love of God displayed through Christ and through our mutual love for one another that's based on the self-sacrificial love of Christ. So we're emulating Jesus that's where we're going to see the fullness. It's going to be the fullness of God's love. And so the question we should have is, what are we pursuing? Think about what our commitments are. Are we pursuing our own way of thinking and our own identity? Or are we emptying ourselves in following after Jesus who emptied himself and laid himself down for us? If we continue to pursue the mystery of love together, it's going to form us into a people who find peace together and also a satisfaction in Jesus, regardless of our circumstances. And we can take on and model what Paul modeled for us, that even in our sufferings, we will not be ashamed. God is the one who loved God is the one who saves. God is the one who has given us a new identity and a new purpose. And he is going to be the one who builds his church. And he's the one who's going to give us fullness. The fullness of his love together. 
And so uh, I'd like your help with the very last part of this passage. Um, we're going to do something a little different, and we're just going to read Paul's doxology. And the doxology is just a statement of praise, and that's what he ends his prayer with for the Ephesians. And so let's read this together. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that is the reality, is that it is more than we could ask or imagine. It's more than we could possibly try to build on our own. We don't need to depend on our own identity. The church is the people of God who have been redeemed, converted by God. We've been given a new mission because of that identity. We can stand as signposts and priests that point people back to him. We preach to the whole world by the way we love. And we will find fullness in God through that love. 